This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. When you picture the Midwestern United States, what do you see? For those who live on either coast, the phrase flyover country might come to mind. Wide open spaces and vast empty plains, miles and miles of corn, as far as the eye can see. The kind of place where nothing much happens, and nobody important ever lived. At least, so goes the pervading stereotype. But if you've spent much time in the Midwest, chances are you have a very different perspective of this landscape. Your vision of America's heartland is probably populated with the friends, family, and experiences that helped shape you and the great state you call home. For writer Erica Treybold of Stromsburg, Nebraska, the Midwest is more than the place she came of age. It's also a landscape rich with stories. In her debut collection, Five Plots, Treybold explores themes of family, heritage, belonging, nostalgia, and the natural world in a series of beautiful, tightly woven essays. Through her unique formal experimentations with prose, Trabold offers a fresh perspective of this often overlooked terrain. Today on the New Books Network, join us as we welcome Erica Trabold to discuss her essay collection, Five Plots, winner of the Seneca Review's first Deborah Tall Lyric Essay Book Prize, now available from Seneca Review Books. Erica, thank you so much for being here with us today. Oh, thank you for having me. Um, This is a lovely thing to do um, with my time and with my energy, and I'm just so excited to be talking with you. I like listening to your podcast. Oh, thank you so much. Wonderful. Um, So first, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, Where are you from and what do you write? Sure. I currently live in Portland, Oregon, and I've been living here for the last two and a half years but I've been living in Oregon for a couple years longer than that. But I still consider myself a Nebraskan. I'm a Nebraskan native. I grew up there in a really small town of a thousand people and went to college in Omaha, which is a place not many people have been. But to me, as someone growing up in a rural area, it was the city, you know, the biggest city in the state. And it was kind of scary to go there. So I don't know. I consider myself from a few places. I definitely consider myself from Nebraska, from a small town. Sometimes I also say I'm from Omaha just because now that's what people recognize. And I also am starting to consider myself an Oregonian in some ways and a Portlander. Um, I think the common theme, though, and the way that I have such a complicated answer to that question um, is that I write a lot about place. And I think a lot about place. So of course that comes into my writing. And 
as a nonfiction writer, the places that I've spent the most time, my home state, my hometown, the place I went to college and had my first job, um, and the place that I live now are just such crucial elements of that work. And so I, I not only write about place, but it, it is a huge element of the thinking that goes into my essays. Um, I also like to write about um, things that I don't know, like <laughs> features of the landscape that I don't understand and give myself little re- research pro- projects um, about the place that I am or the place that I'm thinking about and relationships between people. That's another really interesting um, and broad focus of my work, but something that I'm certainly interested in exploring. So your collection, Five Plots, is the winner of the Deborah Tall Lyric Essay Book Prize. Um, so for those who aren't familiar, can you tell us a little bit about who Deborah Tall was? Absolutely. Um, she's a woman whose career I'm really interested in and fascinated by because I found her work so inspiring when I just started writing essays. Um, I was in a class, actually, where we were writing many different kinds of essays. We were encouraged to try them all on. And when we got to the lyric essay section, um, I just kind of fell in love with it. And one of my te- the teacher for the class just gave me this book by Deborah Tall and was like, I think that you, um, you have a knack for this. And I think that this book could be a touchstone for you. And I didn't know anything about this person. I didn't really have a big reading life at that time. Um, I didn't read a lot of literary magazines or even know much about essays, right? Like I was in a class um, learning about what the heck they were and how to write them. So the book was called A Family of Strangers, written by a woman named Deborah Tall, and based on um, some investigative work she'd done about her family tree and her family history, but written in these beautiful little vignettes of lyric prose about her father and how he was adopted and um, conversations that she'd had with him about his past. And then um, some more exploratory moments where she tries to learn things and fill in the gaps that she doesn't know about who she is and where she comes from. And I loved the book. I loved it so, so much. In fact, it really frightened me because <laughs> those were the things I wanted to write about. And I thought someday I would write a book about, and I realized that the book already existed, which was both great and wonderful to find, but also like, oh no, now I have to come up with some new idea and some new approach to this, which was admittedly a silly thought. But um, I started just wanting to know more about who she was. And by the time the book came into my hands, unfortunately, she had already passed away. Um, She died in 2006. And um, the history, though, of her writing career and her teaching career is is still one that lingers because she edited for many years a literary journal called Seneca Review. And she worked with a student of hers at the time named John Degada to um, add an element to the literary journal for the space between the poem and the essay. And they decided that they wanted to lean into the term lyric essay. And in 1997, together co-wrote this um, this definition and this manifesto of sorts that told writers what it was they were doing and what they were looking for and trying to sort of, I guess, name a genre or a kind of writing that already existed, but really give it a firm place to be published and to be collected and celebrated. So 
Um, Deborah is known as, you know, one of the people that made that happen. And now lyric essay is such a popular um, subgenre of creative nonfiction that, that as we write the history of that form of literature, we always tend to sort of link back to Seneca Review. So both through her writing and through her work for the lyric essay, a champion of the lyric essay, one of the two people that sort of gave it its name as the way we know that form now, um, have made her such a motherly figure or mentorly figure in my writing life, even though I never got the chance to meet her. So then that's a great segue into my next question. (laughs) What does it mean to you as a writer to have been chosen as the first winner of the Deborah Tall Lyric Essay Book Prize? It's really wild. Um, I, I only entered... I didn't feel ready to enter the prize, to be quite honest. I um, I didn't feel like I, I had a book. I don't know how else to describe that, but when I saw it being named after her, um, I thought to myself, I can do this. I really want to honor her as part of my legacy, part of my like writing life. Um, this just seems like it's calling out to me in a weird way. And even though I don't feel quite ready to query agents or send this out, this manuscript out to a bunch of contests and, and, and maybe that is just some of my own insecurities, right. That I was dealing with, but Deborah helped me deal with them. And, um, the prize being named after her, it being the inaugural prize, um, made me feel like, like I was the universe was confirming my writing in, in really beautiful ways whenever I wasn't sure of myself or if I should do something. Um, when I gave it that energy, when I gave lyric essays the energy, when I gave the prize named after someone I truly admire and respect my energy, um, it, it just came back to me in this really beautiful way. So, I mean, as someone who Truly, and and I'm not just making it up because I'm the winner of the prize, but truly um, has been impacted by Deborah's work and the fact that this is the very first prize and it's in her name. I don't know that I really have words to describe what that feels like, um, except that it's a beautiful confirmation for me. And I hope that um, I'm honoring her legacy well through the work that I do. So um, for those who maybe haven't heard of the lyric essay before, um, what distinguishes a lyric essay from other kinds of essays? Yes, other kinds of essays. The hallmark things that we tend to think of when it comes to lyric essays are lack of narrative. Not always, but sometimes. I guess the idea is just that it doesn't need to be there. Um, There doesn't have to be a full story being told the essay can operate much more like a poem and the poem or the lyric essay or, or whatever it is you're writing can depend on other things to generate its momentum and its movement. So um, one of the fun things that you get to play around with when you're writing a lyric essay is of course the attention to the language that you use, which is something that you think about in any genre and any kind of writing, but in a really potent way in a lyric essay. Um, readers are looking for things like repeated words to associate maybe different fragments of thought 
or fragmented stories or images together and find connections between them um, that are fun. Like there are holes left behind in the story. Um, You're not necessarily told every single detail about how you're supposed to get from one idea to the next, one moment to the next, or one place to the next. Um, You kind of just have to, as a reader, do the work of figuring out how those things relate. And in a good lyric essay, the writer has left you enough clues to figure it out. Um, So I think they're really fun. I think of them almost like little puzzles that as a writer, you either get to create and see if people can solve them (laughs) and how you can help people solve them, or as a reader, a puzzle that you get to solve. Like you're asked to really think and do a little bit of work um, to get meaning. And the meaning, um, it's never just one thing. It's, it's whatever you get to make of what is there on the page, right? There's no, um, necessarily prescribed feeling or idea or thing that you get to take away, but, but it's like personal and impactful. Like there are lyric essays that I go back to, even ones that I've written a few years ago, that when I read them, I get an entirely new meaning out of it now, just where I'm at in my life than I did before. So I think of them as like the most interactive um, kind of reading we can do. And they don't necessarily always tell you the story. They just ask you to think about something and they ask you to help create whatever that something is. What does the lyric essay allow you to do in your writing um, that other forms of nonfiction might not be as successful for? I guess, I guess in some of my essays, they span enormous amounts of time. Um, so in one of the essays in, in Five Plots, for instance, I'm looking at how the geography of a place has changed over centuries and over millennia. And I'm not necessarily interested in a year-by-year account or even a, you know, a narrative account of exactly... In, in the way we think of time linear, linearly, um, how that happened, you know, um, it's not a linear story. It um, allows you to kind of place moments next to each other that maybe are wildly different or take place in much different time or circumstance than each other and see what their commonalities are. Um, I think essays can do that too, but... Um, But I think in the lyric essay, the thing that you can achieve is that you don't necessarily have to explain a connection fully. Um, You can just allow yourself the space to wonder about the connection that's being made um, and perhaps allow space for multiple connections that your subconscious hasn't even allowed you to consider might be made in the future. Um, and I think, yeah, play with, play with time and play with moments and images in ways that even though they're fixed and stuck on the page could mean something totally different five years from now than they do today. I think they allow an essay to really be alive, um, and to be experienced differently all the time in every single reading of it. 
Yours is a collection of five distinct essays. Um, we have canyoneering, borrow pits, a list of concerns, tracks, and the titular five plots. Uh, each essay not only tells a different story, but how the stories are told range from more narrative, uh, centered with tracks, to a more sort of braided structure with borrow pits, uh, to a literal list in a list of concerns. Could you speak a little more to how these lyric essays are formally distinguished from one another and how you made those choices? Sure. Um, Part of it's mysterious, which is kind of what I was saying before about how it's really fun to write them (laughs) because you don't know what's going to happen. I think that's true of many kinds of writing. Whenever I describe the process of finding form for a particular essay, um, the poets in the room say, well, yeah, that's poem. (laughs) Like, you're a poet. That's what we do. And I just never learned (laughs) how to write poems. So maybe I do have the poet's impulse in that way. But um, I'm thinking about when I sit down to write, not, I never, I never personally start from a place of having a story to tell. And I think that that's probably evident in some of the other answers I've given you during this interview. I'm not really thinking about a story I have to tell. I'm not really thinking about um, some piece of wisdom that I wish to deliver, and now I just have to sit down and write it, and, it, and it's coming through me. I think in many forms of essay, personal essay, research, lyric essay, you know, wherever you might fall, there are many more kinds of essays than the three I just listed, of course. But um, they, they begin with a question or an idea or a moment that leaves you wondering about something. And I think that I always begin there. What is the question that I'm trying to answer? What is the thing that I'm after and how do I find it? And, and that's not only achieved through sentences, at least not in the essays in this book that I've written and in my writing life so far. It's also achieved through the structure that you give the thought. And um, that can help make meaning on the page as well. So for instance, when I was writing this, the, a list of concerns, the essay that's written in the form of a list with actual numbers along the left-hand margin, it, it didn't start out as a list. It started out as me going on an adventure and this day that I had and the things that I was thinking about being home. And I went out to a prairie reserve and I was just trying to have an experience and see what it brought up. And I was trying to write about the thoughts that it brought up and the questions that I still had. And I, it got me thinking a lot about my friends and what I found, remembered the most about them are these lists that we used to make. And I started writing about the lists and I thought that the theme of the essay was starting to be something about um, the rules that we give ourselves to live by. And the promises that we hold each other to. Well, you said this and you didn't really follow through. And that as we grow up, like our lives really change and they can change our relationships with people. And I thought, wow, the form of a list and these demands that we give ourselves just might be a good way to capture that feeling that I'm already talking about in the essay and give me permission to move really far from one paragraph to the next because um, like if I'm in the moment in the prairie or I'm talking about my friends back in, you know, 2000 and what we were doing with these lists we were making or um, 
you know, just a thought that I have or a piece of research about the prairie. The one thing that is cool about the form of a list in this case is that it's the thing on the side of the page that helps me like establish trust with the reader. Like I'm still here. I'm taking you somewhere. And yes, I'm talking about lists and this relates thematically, but also just like know that I'm not just going to leave you without connections between all of these ideas. Like I'm taking you somewhere. And so that's just one example, but it's something I think about with every lyric essay that I write, how can the form help me communicate something to the reader that the that the words quite can't quite, you know? I'm not just going to write the sentence, trust me, I'm taking you somewhere. Um, and, and that's not the only thing that form can do, but it's one thing that form can do. And it can um, bring really cool life to ideas. And some people would say, well, that's what poems do. And I think that's true. And I think it's a quality that is shared with the more experimental kinds of lyric essays. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Could you tell us more about the premise of Five Plots as a collection? Uh, So for instance, where do these essays take place and what are some of the most prominent themes and concerns at play? Absolutely. Um, So Five Plots has five essays in it, and that's the first layer of structure and meaning across the book. It's also the name of one of the essays in the collection. In fact, the very first lyric essay I think I ever wrote and published which was published in Seneca Review. So I see like a really cool symmetry between that being one of my very first publications and votes of confidence as a young writer and being the first recipient of their prize as well. Um, So five essays, that's one layer. Um, Five plots is the name of one essay (laughs) that's in five parts. I won't spoil anything else beyond that about the meaning of the title because it's sort of fun to figure out like I was describing earlier, we read lyric essays and we get to like make cool associations and meaning. Um, but the common theme that I tend to tell people between the essays in the collection, what holds it all together, right? Because it's not a big narrative arc, like a memoir. It's not a story that you sit down and read from start to finish um, with characters moving through it. There are some recurring characters in the essays, but not many. Um, the thing that holds them together are that they take place in Nebraska, which is where I'm from. And they take place in very different parts of Nebraska, which is a place that not many people have been, truly. Um, they may, whenever I talk to people about the state of Nebraska, they either say, oh, never been there, or, oh, I drove through once on the interstate. <laughs> and here's one town that I stopped in and one restaurant that I ate at. And so... I think part of my mission is just to tell you what else is out there while telling you about what my experience was like living there. And and there are so many stereotypes of the Midwest and especially Nebraska. Um, One of the things, one of the themes of the collection is that people, even people that live in the Midwest, 
think of it as a place that has never changed, right? That it's like lost to time and that it's a prairie and it's primitive. It's not. Like almost every single thing about what the natural landscape of the Midwest was before, you know, um, westward expansion and and um, settling, you know, white settlers is gone. Like the native landscape of what the Midwest and what the prairie used to be is completely gone. And what's there now is very different. And so I guess I'm trying to bring that to life, you know, um, there's all these different ways that the landscape has changed. There's not just one. And so in each of the essays, I think each of the essays for sure, deals with some aspect of that changed landscape and what it's actually like and how it's been changed. And it also has to do with just being a young girl and growing up in a place and being attached to it, but also having conflicting feelings about what it means to be from that place because it has a complicated history. I have a complicated history. And that's a u- universal concern that I think no matter if you're from the Midwest or a misunderstood place or not, you can relate to. Um, and also, one thing that I was trying to highlight or think about through each of these essays was relationships between women. So young women who are friends, mothers and daughters, um, daughters or granddaughters and grandmothers, um, and just how we relate to the the people around us, but specifically for me, how I've related to different women in my life. So in thinking about the landscape of Nebraska, this is a theme that you've just said, uh, Five Plots focuses on across several essays. Um, But I noticed like a specific tension between human beings and nature in the essay Borrow Pits. And I was wondering, how do you see your work grappling with that tension? I I think this is um, a tension that is perfectly illustrated in the history of my home state and my hometown of Nebraska. Um, Because, I don't know, like, we, we only know what nature is by the experiences that we have with it. And if we're cut off from the natural world, um, what we think of it as the natural world is really skewed and is really frightening. Um, if you come to an understanding of what the natural world is actually supposed to be like, or the interventions that have taken place, um, between what you know as it and what it actually is. I don't know. That's a little bit rambly. The essay that you're talking about has to do with a place that was really formative to my childhood, this lake. And I thought of it as, you know, going to nature. And I loved being outside and wandering around. But then, you know, like the more I thought about it as I got older, that wasn't a natural place at all. It was a man-made lake that was just carved out of the side of a river and existed as more or less a vacation property. So um, this is something I think about a lot, like, I didn't know that, you know, I didn't know that. To me, that was the epitome of being outside and experiencing nature, but it was actually so artificially created by human beings. And so I think an underlying question in that essay and in perhaps a few of the essays in the book has to do with, um, like, what is our relationship to nature? I don't think I ever offer an answer. I just offer it as something to ponder and consider. What is nature? Um, 
do we create it or does it exist independently? Um, how do we harm it? How do we help it? And um, how do we hold the answers to all of these questions in a way that, um, I don't know, makes the world a better place, makes us better people? <laughs> what about the Midwestern United States differentiates it from other American landscapes, maybe both in terms of its geological features, um, but also the, the sort of zeitgeist between people? Mm, what do you mean by the zeitgeist people? Well, you mentioned earlier about how um, your relationship to other women in your life, friends, um, family members, uh, was sort of shaped by the place where you grew up in. And so maybe you could speak more to that. Yeah. Um, I think that, you know, popular culture does a really good job of telling us if we're from a place like the Midwest, and it's not the only place, you know, I think this happens to almost all of us that exist somewhere between the coasts. Um, popular culture does a good job of telling us that where we're from doesn't matter and that it doesn't contribute to culture and that it's not exciting. Nothing exciting happens there. Nothing exciting could happen there. Um, and that it's not beautiful and, um, that smart people don't live there, <laughs> you know, like all these kinds of things, they're not set out right, but the representations overwhelmingly are that the important places to be are anywhere that's not that's not here on this farm in this small town. And I think that can do a lot to to your psychology. Um, it can it can influence you in a number of different ways. For some people, I think it firmly roots you in that place and you want to say no. Um, all of those things are just not true. Um, but I think that to get there, it takes a lot of work um, to understand the beauty of where you're from and to actually experience it for yourself instead of through the lens of what other people tell you. And so some of the learning that took place for me, um, one of the things that distinguishes the Midwest perhaps out of all the other underrepresented, underrepresented regions is that um, the landscape, like you, you said, part of this question has to, could have to do with the landscape. Um, less than 10% of the natural ecosystems of the Midwest, and I'm talking mainly about the prairie and the grasslands here, are left. They've been totally destroyed. Um, and the word is decimated, right? Like 10%, a tenth of it is left. And that is the most destroyed landscape in the entire continent of North America. So I think that's one thing um, that marks it differently than other places is that it the message from the very beginning of this, you know, colonial colonization and colonial force kind of like sweeping the the continent is that thing I was talking about that still persists. This place is not beautiful. It is not important. Nothing is happening here. And so it's been destroyed. And so uh, that sounds like such a downer. I think what it reveals, <laughs> what it reveals though, is that there's opportunity, right? There is opportunity to talk about beauty. There's opportunity to talk about the things that people don't realize exist there um, or have existed or have been lost. And there's opportunity for celebration 
and that we haven't been giving it. And I think that's awesome. And I want to participate in it as much as possible. Speaking more broadly, uh, how do concepts like Americana and or nostalgia factor into your work with this collection? I think if you're writing personal essays, there's always probably a glint of nostalgia happening and at work. Um, I think if I'm writing about my childhood, there's always a little bit of that veil of missing the good old days and what has been lost. I think that's just a theme generally that we perhaps either resist or explore on the page if we are nonfiction writers and especially if we dabble in the personal essay elements of our nonfiction writing. Um, for me, I also wanted to take that a step further with the theme and think about what nostalgia might mean to other people. Um, mm -hmm. You know, how is it that we think about our lives and how is it that we determine the things we want for ourselves and reflect on how good a job we've done and if we've been happy and, and all of those things? Um, I think there's a particularly American way of thinking about them that at least in one of my essays, I talk about, from my point of view, seeing my grandparents and my family trying to achieve in a specific way. Um, and I don't use the theme to just think about it. That's one thing. But also, um, I try to write in order to make decisions about my own life, I've, I've realized through the years. Um, the reason that I'm asking, you know, what is it my grandparents wanted? What is it that my parents wanted? How American is that? And how ingrained is that? And did they do a good job? Is really to get to the point of, do I want that too? Or, you know, how much of this is true and should be trusted and believed? And how much do I want to resist and sort of create my own story? So I think I sort of use concepts of nostalgia and Americana thematically, just, of course, to question them. And then for the, you know, purpose in my own life, the selfish purpose in my own life to really make myself think, now what do I want? What am I going to do with that? And I think it's something that readers consider too when they're confronted with those ideas on the page, hopefully. Um, who are some lyric essayists or what are some lyric essays that have inspired you in the writing of Five Plots? Oh, good question. I of course, I've been inspired by Deborah Tall. I've read her many of her books, um, and she was pretty formative, especially to the form of the essay Borrow Pits. Um, I'm, I've also been influenced by writers like Jenny Bootley, who is probably like 10 to 100 times more experimental in her essaying than I will ever be, but I like reading her because it challenges me, and I... Um, I like encountering her work out there in the world. Um, other lyric essays that I admire, they really run the gamut. Some, I think people would argue with me and say, no, they're so traditional. But to me, they have such a wonderful lyric quality, like Annie Dillard, um, who writes a lot about the natural world in ways that are wild and poetic and imaginative. I think that's the other thing that lyric essay really offers space for, even if um, you're writing in a paragraph by paragraph style and you're not experimenting in a list or something crazy, um, you still get to really speculate and imagine on the page different um, 
different scenarios and versions of history and and whatnot. I I love that about Annie Dillard's writing specifically. Um, Maggie Nelson, for sure. Most importantly, Bluets. And I don't know. I probably have a shelf that looks a lot like um, many of your favorite, you know, lyric essayists out there. Eulabus. Um, I like Say in the Ladies because I think they do a really good job. Um, but of course, I should also acknowledge um, other folks out there like, who am I thinking? Well, John Degata. I haven't spent a lot of time talking about him yet, but he sort of co-created this space with Deborah as his student and as the continuing and current editor of Lyric Essays at Seneca Review. He also judged this prize, which felt really, really awesome <laughs> because he continues her legacy in so many ways. Um, and his work is just fascinatingly weird and wonderful and controversial. I think that's the other territory that lyric essays can kind of wade into is the controversy over um, that imagination and that speculation that's present in the work. You know, what do you owe readers? What is the difference between fact and truth? So, I mean, I kind of dig the controversy. I like writing in a genre that um, isn't only just like really beautiful and fun and intellectually challenging to encounter, but that there's a conversation going on about it in the real world, about its ethical considerations, and that people want to keep thinking on that and talking about that. I think that's really, really interesting and fun. I love it. Um, so there are uh, several notable male lyric essayists, but the lyric essay as a form is often attributed to women. And I was wondering uh, what you think about that. Why do you think that is? Why do I think that is? Ooh, is this a question that you already had or was it spurred by my last response? Both. <laughs> Both. Okay. Because I'm like, I wonder if I just made it seem that way with all the people that I listed off. But no, I think you're right. I think that's true. Um, I think many writers and many essayists bring a lyric quality to their work. I don't see many um, male identifying writers necessarily owning the moniker lyric essayist, you know, like um, maybe essayist or maybe writer or, you know, poet or, or whatever the case may be. But I'm maybe being really short-sighted, but I'm like, no one's coming to mind. <laughs> I think, I think that it's a, a place of resistance. Maybe that's why it's filled with so many um, women and female identifying writers. Like, it resists that prescribed narrative arc that we've been told is the cornerstone of all great literature. The hero's journey, you know, the um, even just the simple elements of conflict and resolution, because it's a different way of seeing the world and experiencing the world that, you know, lyric essay can allow you to achieve that doesn't follow that that formula. I think any essaying could really allow you to achieve that kind of perspective, but especially the lyric essay, because it at its core does not need resolution, does not need a story to carry it forward. It needs perspective and it needs um, thought and images and, and insight and individual. So I think it's just a safe place, right? Like we don't have to try to fit our stories into 
a form that doesn't represent our true experience. Um, I think it's challenging to try to write, especially in the form of the hero's journey, if you haven't felt particularly, you know, triumphant and uh, successful. And in a patriarchal like culture, that's the place that many women are kept. Um, so I don't know, maybe I'm being too grand with this answer, but I think that because of the space that it allows to tell your story on your terms, um, in the way that represents experience, whatever that looks like for you as the eye on the page or as the writer of this essay, um, that maybe that's why it's more attractive, um, to, to those of us that haven't had a traditional, you know, conquering experience. (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, I have one last question for you. I don't want to take up too much more of your time. So what are you hoping that readers um, come away from five plots, maybe thinking about or understanding better? Mm, I think, well, can I say two things? Yeah. Okay, two things. One, I want to know, I want to go to Nebraska. I want to see, <laughs> like, I want to see what the heck she's talking about because I've never really thought about it before. Nobody has ever asked me to think about Nebraska before. Nobody has ever recommended it to me as a vacation destination. I would love it if people were like, man, I really want to go there and see what that's all about. The other thing um, is that I hope people are really interested in lyric essays. I hope they have fun just reading Um, what I've written and being a co-creator and meaning and trying to figure out um, what I'm after and how that might relate to their lives. I hope that they go away hungry to read more lyric essays and that, I don't know, the world can only become a better place the more lyric essays we read. Well, Erica, thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. Fun to talk to you, Zoe. My name is Zoe Bossier, and I'm a host for New Books in Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Thanks for listening.